for those of you that might not know Sean Ellis yet, maybe you can give her a short introduction of yourself. Sure. Yeah, just a real quick introduction. About the first 10 years of my career, I helped to start two companies that ran marketing and both companies listed on NASDAQ and hit that billion dollar plus valuation mark that we all aim for. And then I realized after the second company that the most important contribution that I made in the marketing role was in the really first six months of go to market. And so the sad part is that in 10 years, I had only done that twice. So I, I tried to come up with a structure where I could do that multiple times. And so I joined several companies as an interim VP marketing just for that first six months of, of go to market. And I had an opportunity to work on products like uh, Dropbox for the first six months of public availability and Eventbrite and another one called Lookout. So Really, I mean, I, there's a ton of luck with it, but five of the first six companies I worked on uh, reached the billion dollar valuation marks. And I know it's luck because my success rate slowed down after that. So it's not, it's not something that kind of got better over time, but that's that, that leads to a really important point around product market fit and the role that that plays in success. So my luck was getting companies that had a ton of potential, still required a lot of execution. And so that's some of the other things is the, way that I executed, I later put a, a name on it, growth hacking. And so I coined that term growth hacking and uh, wrote a book called Hacking Growth. And now I also have a podcast called Breakout Growth, where I'm talking to leaders at the fastest growing companies in the world, really trying to understand what is what is key to driving their growth. So that's a, a quick summary of me. That's amazing. So I guess not many of us can say they have worked with a billion dollar company. So even two, I guess, is already more than most of us will ever achieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely something that's, that's very cool to be a part of. I guess a lot of people also know the book. I mean, it's basically the, the, it's the Bible of growth hacking. So that's yeah, the... it's, it's, um, it, it, I've been really excited. So I wrote it with Morgan Brown, who works in growth at Facebook. And so Facebook, I think is one of the best in the world at this. And so taking Morgan's experience and my experience and trying to get everything in a book and, and talking about how you can do this at scale and what to do in the early days. It's been, it's been really good for getting the word out there. And Compared to the early days, so how would you say has growth hacking changed or evolved since those early days? Yeah, I think in the, in the super early days, it was really, I was just trying to figure it out. You know, I, I, the first company I worked on was 1996. I invested in the company in 1995. So it was really just at the, at the, the dawn of the internet. And so there were no books on internet marketing. There weren't really experts on it. And so my, my background had actually been in sales and just cold calling it, cold call selling, commission only, no base salary. So I was all about working the numbers and working the funnel. And that, that turned out to be a, an actual pretty good background going into internet marketing where you know, other people who, who took a more traditional approach where they didn't have metrics and, and maybe relied too much on kind of awareness building um, that where, where it was less about ROI driven, you know, results driven, probably had less advantage in the early days. So kind of taking that approach, plus I mentioned I, I invested in my first company. So that meant that I had a lot of uh, skin in the game and I didn't want to just try to convince everyone I was doing a good job with marketing. I wanted to make sure I actually was doing a good job with marketing <laughs> so that I could, uh, I could get a, not only a return on investment on the marketing, but a return on my investment That's in it. the company. Yeah. And so... I think that, that just really drove me. And I, and I was pretty young as well as I was getting started in that first company. So I didn't have a lot of years of experience to forget. I could really, I could really say, how, how should you acquire and convert, retain, monetize customers in this 
connected world where you have actually data behind all of these digital actions that people are taking. And so I could really kind of help, help to trailblaze and invent an approach there. And so really across these first two companies, I evolved the process. I think probably the biggest between the first and the second, the biggest way I evolved was uh, I was very data driven in the first company. The second company, I began to be a lot more qualitative as well. So really trying to understand who loves this product? Why do they love this product? When they try to sign up, why do they, why do they give up? So I ran a ton of surveys and uh, a lot of conversations with customers and I'll credit one of my investors who, who, who pushed me to do that. And at first I, uh, I kind of said, I don't care what people say. I care what they do. And, and, uh, but, but ultimately he, he said, that's not good enough. You, when was the last time you talked to a customer was, was kind of the, every, every conversation I had with this investor. And so what was cool is that I started to realize I ran much better tests when I talked to customers, I, I could really contextualize the situation. And so, um, you know, growth hacking in general, if I were to say, but you know, by the time I, I put a name on the approach that I was taking was 2010. And um, it's really about, you know, rapid, rapid testing and learning so that you can figure out how to effectively acquire and convert and retain customers. And so it's kind of using the scientific process of analysis and hypothesis driven ideation, and then having some sort of system for prioritizing which tests you run first, and then taking the learning from those tests to be smarter about where you test going forward. And the, the higher the velocity of testing, generally the faster you learn how to grow the business. And so um, that's really a lot of what my book was about and up to the point where you can effectively execute that. What's changed since the book? I would say it's really easy to understand conceptually what growth hacking is. It's easy for, for one person to say, okay, I want to do this. But particularly as a company grows, different teams control different parts of that customer journey. So you have maybe a product team that's controlling the first user experience inside the product, plus the, the core product experience. Sometimes you in a B2B business, you've got a sales team involved in some of that and a customer success team. Then you've got, you know, business models and revenue models and, and who, who controls the referral loop in the business. And so what I found is that one person who understands growth hacking generally in a company, and it, it doesn't have to be that big, even like 20 or 30 people, that one person is going to get really frustrated when other teams don't understand the importance of testing and learning and, and that, that ultimately maybe that person comes in with a marketing background and then really all they can do is take that, that test learn process to marketing channels. And that's, that's online marketing 101. That's how any online marketer should be doing things. So marketers are pretty good at testing. The difference with growth hacking is that you want to take that testing and push it much deeper into the overall customer experience in the product and that and an improvement in your activation rate or your referral rate makes it so much easier to cost effectively pay to acquire customers through your marketing channels. So there's, there's a ton of interdependency there and that interdependency when you have different people controlling those levers is kind of a nightmare to actually get them all aligned and working together. So that's what most of my focus has been is how, how do I overcome that organizational friction to adopting and applying growth hacking to effectively grow a business. The parrot funnel was intended to break down the silos. So you have marketing and you have the product part, right? So you were thinking already of combining those two 
into maybe one person, one department. Yeah. But I think in practice, it is much harder to break down those silos than it's going to be on paper. Right? Yeah, well, I'm, in particular, you've got most product teams. I mean, it, it's just the marketing teams are wired to be very test-driven. Product teams kind of tend to feel like that they've got a, a roadmap and a vision for the product that when they just add that one more feature or when they just get the, the product right, we're not even going to need marketing anymore. This thing's going to just grow, grow on its own. And it, and it rarely works that way. Sometimes a feature is going to be really effective in, in helping to drive growth. But most of the time, the issue is not there's not enough features in the core product. The issue most of the time is that a new user has no idea what to do and how to get value from that product. And so your highest churn rate for new users tends to happen in the first 30 days on a product because you're not able to effectively onboard them to an experience where they really get the value and want to keep, come back and keep using it. And so the fastest growing companies are, are investing, but consumer companies anyway, are investing upwards of 50% of their product development resources in that first user experience, the challenge is that most product teams couldn't imagine doing that. And so you might be able to carve out a separate group that's a growth group that's doing it, but it still requires the product team to, to allow another team to go in and, and start to run experimentations in core product. And even if it's the onboarding, it's still core product. And so that's where I found that just just having a different group have responsibility for it doesn't necessarily fix it. And so the only thing that I found that can effectively get companies to adopt this approach and work around this approach is to start all the way back at the beginning, get all of the cross-functional leadership in the room for a full day and start down to why the hell do we even exist? You know, what's the, what do customers get? What's the value that customers get from our product? How do we measure that value? How, you know, that ultimately when you come down to sort of what is, what is the mission and vision for the overall business, usually everyone plays a role in fulfilling that mission. And so that's where you got to go all the way back to the commonality of, of mission and customer problems and how do we solve those problems, then come up with a metric. We call that a North Star metric that, that really measures progress on the mission and progress on delivering value to customers. And then rethink how how teams to work work together to accelerate the delivery of that value and the and the growth of that North Star metric. And so, the the great thing is that I have found that in a single day, if I can run a workshop with a with a full team, I can I can help to to drive that realignment. Obviously, fifty thousand person company that's been around for a hundred years is going to be a lot harder than a fifty person company or a hundred person company. But I do think that the reward of getting people aligned around a common vision for how to drive growth success in the business is going to be even bigger the, the bigger the company is. And so it's worth, it's worth everyone trying to, trying to think how, how can we be more aligned around driving value for customers. And so a lot of it's trial and error for me still as well. I'm constantly looking at my feedback loop on these workshops to see what's the rate of experimentation before the workshop and after the workshop. How does that North Star metric accelerate in the business? If I don't see a, a measurable change in the growth trajectory of the North Star metric, then I consider it a failure on that workshop. And so all of those things help me refine the approach. And at the same time, that's where the, where the podcast comes in. I'm constantly 
interviewing these leaders from the fastest growing companies to understand how they're approaching growth and where their challenges are and what works. And, and as I get those additional inputs, I, I get more models in, in how, how I can get different things I can apply in the workshops and try to get more, more companies adopting those approaches. So with all your experience in the workshops and talking to the biggest companies in the world, what would you say to somebody that says growth hacking does not work in B2B enterprise, for example? Uh, I would say, so everything you're doing is perfect then. <laughs> you know, that would be my first point. So, so yeah. I think the commonality with B2B enterprise or B2C is growth mindset. Do you, do you have potential for improvement in any part of your business? And if, if most, most people, if they really ask that question, they're going to say, yes, we're not, we're not perfect anywhere. And so the only way you can truly drive that improvement is through testing. testing. You know, that, that sometimes the things you're going to drive improvement aren't going to work. And so you need some sort of feedback loop to say, did it work or did it not work? And then growth hacking is really about how do you prioritize which experiments you're going to run? Where do you run those experiments? How do you run those experiments? And it's different for sure in B2B versus B2C, but in both cases, it's about accelerating the pace of learning so that you can attract more of the right customers and bring more of those customers to the right experience with the product. And I think what you're starting to see, particularly in the business to enterprise companies is that The biggest difference between them and the, and the consumer businesses is really in how you get in the door of those businesses. So a consumer is the user and they're going to make their own decision. But in an enterprise, a lot of times the actual user of a product is very different than the buyer of the product. And so that's the part that's different. And yeah, it's, it's harder to run scientific tests when you've got salespeople involved because just there's too many variables but you should still be striving for improvement in how, how you connect and you know, how, how to iterate those pitches. I mentioned I started in sales, so I, I, I know the sales process to some degree. And then, but where it starts to look more and more like a consumer business is once you get the sale, how do you drive adoption inside the organization once you get the sale? And that's where you see companies like Slack, the same way that Facebook has kind of a seven friends in 10 days. So Facebook knows that if they can't get an individual to seven friends in 10 days, that person's going to stop using Facebook. Slack has a similar metric. They know they need to get someone to 2,000 messages before they give up on the service. And at once there's 2,000 messages in the service, then that the benefits of, of keeping Slack become really obvious. And so now, now they're optimizing the same way you would in a consumer business, but you're just, you're essentially acquiring customers inside that business. So how do I get existing customers to or existing users to invite other users? How do I optimize the engagement loop where someone gets a notification that they have a message and how do I get them to respond to that message, which then sends a notification to the other person. And it's all, So there's a ton of experiments around all of that that ultimately accelerate how many companies get to the 2,000 messages that are needed to become sticky inside that business. And so I think you're seeing that across really every type of enterprise business, especially as you move to SaaS and not just big licensing fees. If you're a SaaS business and your customers aren't using your product, they're going to cancel their subscription. So it's, it becomes really critical to drive engagement 
in your customers and keep them using your product and keep the benefit. And, and the fact is that it feels a lot better too. Nobody likes to be, nobody likes to be really good at selling something that doesn't provide any value for their customers. And then you're just, you're kind of a snake oil salesman at that, at that point. So you're better off if you can actually get customers understanding the benefit, using it. And then what happens, the other big benefit there is that you unlock a lot of referral, business to business referral, because people really get the benefit of the product. They're going to tell others about it. And that's, and so that's where you see companies spreading much more quickly than in the past is because they, you know, if you love a product, you're going to tell other people about it. And so that's, that's where, you know, I think, I would say 99% of the people who've purchased Slack, for example, um, probably heard about it from someone else rather than seeing an advertisement for Slack and converting on that. And so you're, the, the, the difference between B2C and B2B is, is definitely is shrinking. You mentioned earlier your days at Dropbox, for example, there was a lot of, I would say, breakthrough hacks, even if I don't like the word hack. Would you say that those got less or are they just less visible? You know, I, I, you know, I think where the, the, the breakthrough experiments, so, you know, you can call them hacks or you can call them experiments, but it's really, it's really about problem solving a lot of times. And so it's, it's about understanding almost every business has, it's that funnel that we talked about, you know, you, you, you got, you got a hundred people who are potentially interested in a product and then a very small fraction of those people are going to sign up for it. And a very small fraction of those people who sign up are actually going to effectively onboard to where they get value and become a long-term user. And so usually it's not a super exciting hack that, that fixes some of those things. Usually it's like, Oh, people, people are giving up because it's really confusing right here, or this part's scary, or, you know, or it just, it's not compatible with this browser. It's, it's, it, a lot of times it can be super sort of boring things, but when you fix the things that hold prospective customers back from experiencing real value in the product, then you get a lot more of them experiencing that value. And almost every business I've, I've done, uh, I've published six interviews now on the Breakout Growth Podcast and uh, done, done several others. And almost every one of those businesses organic growth is the biggest driver of growth in those businesses. But organic growth is not just something like, oh, we don't need marketing because we have a ton of word of mouth on this product. Mm -hmm. If you can get people to a great experience, they will tell other people about it. How do I fix what's preventing people from getting a great experience? So one, I need to understand what that experience is and who are the people who really need that experience. So that's some kind of classical marketing stuff there, especially on the who needs it. The what is the experience is a lot of you know, combining quantitative analysis. People who do this become long-term engaged. People who don't do this don't become long-term engaged. And then layering in the qualitative research to understand why do they become long-term engaged when they do that? What is, what is that benefit that they're getting? And then, so one of the, the billion-dollar companies that I worked with, for example, I... I ran, there's a survey question that, that's become pretty popular now, which is how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And it's a question I made up years ago. And what I was always looking for is are, are the people who say I would be very disappointed without the product. Yeah. And um, what I found is that if companies are above 40% on that number, when I asked their customers, if more than 40% of the customers come back and say, I would be very disappointed. Most of the time, those companies are pretty easy to grow. 
And so, um, but if they're substantially less than that, then, then, you know, I could be really good at attracting people, but if they don't like the experience, or don't really consider it a must have, then I'm going to lose those people afterwards. And so I had one company where I asked that question and, um, I had already committed to six months with the company, uh, and it came back and only 7% of the people said they'd be very disappointed without the product. So I was what a little, did you know then? yeah, I was a little bit, Oh crap. Why did I just commit to six months? But, um, we were able to move it to 40% in two weeks. Really? Yeah. And you would think, okay, we're gonna have to change everything in the product. We're gonna have to go back to the drawing board, rebuild this. But what I did was I studied the 7% who said they'd be very disappointed without the product. And so what I learned was who were those people and then how are they using the product and what is the benefit that they're getting? And so very easily could change my messaging around that benefit. So now I'm setting the right promise of what the product is truly great at doing. And then, and then we made it a couple of changes to the onboarding so that people could very quickly streamline the delivery of the benefit related to what made it a must have. And then surveyed the next group of people who went through this new onboarding with this new message and it was 40% instead of 7%. And then six months later, it was up to 60%. And now that's a multi-billion dollar business. And so again, it's not just creating something that's great. It's understanding why it's great and how to get people to experience the greatness and what prevents them from getting to that greatness. And, and a lot of that is just it's about testing and learning and understanding and not everything you try is going to work. But if you, if you have a very inefficient onboarding process and a very inefficient process of, of driving long-term engagement and monetization, then you're going to have a very hard time spending money to effectively acquire customers. You're, you're going to say, just the economics in this business are not very good. I just can't find any positive return on investment channels to acquire these customers through. But usually it's because all of the other parts of the business are broken. And, and so that's, that's the interdependence piece that I was talking about. Especially this first part of not having the right people and not addressing the right people with the right message is so crucial that it's going to break the whole funnel afterwards. So what are you currently working on? So yeah, the, the main thing that I'm working on now is I have a team that's running Growth Hackers now. So day to day, I'm, I'm not in the operations of, of Growth Hackers, which is, which is nice after... I've been running companies now for, for most of the last eight years. And so being able to just pursue a lot of the learning around these things, as I said. So I think the podcast for me has been awesome because I'm able to, I just booked a company for the podcast. Two years ago, they had 70 employees and now they have 800 employees. And I'm, I'm talking to their CMO over the next couple of weeks. And just even in the time, the nine months she's been at the business, they grew from 300 employees to 750 employees. So I'm not sure when that particular episode will air, but I usually release episodes every Thursday. So I just released the episode with uh, Freshly, um, Meyer Gupta. So Freshly is another kind of crazy breakout company, but Meyer actually um, ran growth at Spotify before he moved to Freshly. So part of it was, part of my questioning is why the heck you know, what, what was it about Freshly that made you feel like you could have similar success that you had at Spotify? And then and he just he just unleashes so much great information, particularly, you know, some of the things that you don't think about with this. It feels so much of this feels like, oh, it's just about figuring out the right tactics. But 
how do you deal with with the chaos? Growth is chaotic when you when you have just all of this the, the crazy operational challenges of growing super fast. If you aren't able to effectively service customers as you grow really fast, that becomes something that's going to kill your ability to grow, particularly on the organic side that I talked about. So your customers are no longer going to be thrilled about what you're doing, and so. Um, so, so many of the interviews that of the really fast growing companies, so like TransferWise as well, I, I uh, talked to Neilan Paris, their head of growth recently, and he just, he said he sees a marked change in the NPS when their ability to absorb new customers and service those customers effectively drops. So their customer support queues start to stretch out and, and they see that NPS number drop and they see their organic growth drop. And so for them, it's about kind of tightening up and fixing all of those operations in order to be able to reaccelerate growth where normally most companies, if they're thinking about growth and it slows down, oh, well, we got the wrong marketing person. We're going to have to swap that out. But no, it's, it's so interdependent. And so that's been really fascinating for me is just this, this ongoing study of these companies. And then at the same time, the, the hands-on ability to go run a workshop and then, and then have lots of follow-ups with, with the companies in, in the workshops as well and seeing where are they struggling and what's working and what's not working. And um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's, I'm, I have my hands full with it, but I'm, I'm really enjoying the flexibility. It's awesome to help get the word out there and really try to help. You know, I'm, I don't want to help every company. I just want to help the companies that actually have great solutions to important problems. And uh, and when you do that, that feels good. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. Find the statement. Also, great summary for it. Thanks, Sean, for having me here. Thank you, Christoph.